I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Welcome, Trevor Noah! goodness let me just tell you I I have to say I love this book I love this book thank so, you so much. much thank you and uh, really I have to tell you I am so impressed that you were able to bring the story to the world in a way that has such humor and such depth such sincerity and such truth really fantastic thank you very much Amazing. Thank you. Um, it's called Born a Crime, and I got to just tell you, gonna, you're going to love it. I've never heard of a comedian, actually, who grew up in apartheid South Africa right. under such extreme conditions, and then being able to turn that around into comedy. Well, I think that's, that's really what I've found comedy is for me. You know, my whole life, comedy has always been a tool that I've used to process pain. It's how my family communicated. It's one thing we had. We always laughed. And you've been to Soweto, you've seen how yes. we live there. You know, the weird thing is when I always say to people, when you're poor, like being poor sucks, but being poor together makes it a lot better, right? Because you're in it together and you, you don't, you don't, it doesn't discount the fact that you don't have, but then you start to enjoy the things that you do have and that is each other. And so we laughed, we enjoyed ourselves. We had something that sometimes you don't have when you have too much and that is the ability to focus on the human beings around you. But you know, I thought this was the best example uh, or, or definition of apartheid I'd heard. You say it was a police state, a system of surveillance and laws designed to keep black people under total control. A full compendium of those laws would run more than 3,000 pages and weigh approximately 10 pounds. But the general thrust of it should be easy enough for any American to understand. In America, you had the forced removal of the native onto reservations, coupled with slavery, followed by segregation. Now imagine all three of those things happening to the same group of people at the same time. That was apartheid. That was apartheid. That's a beautiful explanation. Yeah. Beautiful that's, explanation. that's really what it was. It was perfect and studied racism. You know, which is, it's disappointing sometimes when you realize how far some people will go, what lengths people will go to to oppress other people. I always think to myself, with all of that talent, you know, I think of my high school teachers would be like, if you just applied yourself, young man, you could do so many good things for the world. Yeah. Could, I think of how many amazing things they could have done with South Africa with that same, because apartheid was an evil genius plan. It's amazing in its insidious nature, and that's really what it was all about. And so you were literally born a crime. Right. Right. Born a crime. Right. It was illegal for a European to cohabitate, to be, have sex. Yes, to have carnal intercourse or interaction with any person of another and That race. was a law. Yes. And it was a law that if you were a black person, you could not be... Right. Yeah. Right. Everyone was separated. 
And so black and white and even smaller groups within race, you know, so in America oftentimes it's just black and white when the discussion is had, but in South Africa they were meticulous. So it's black and white. Within black, black was divided into all different tribes and those tribes were separated from one another. And then even within different races, like Asian people separated Japanese, a different class to Chinese and, and Indian, a different class to other types of Asian. And, and this was a system designed to make sure that every group was small and oppressed in a different way. That's right, and speaking different languages so nobody could communicate. Right. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you, when you were a little boy, they had to hide you. Which is something I didn't know, by the way. That was, that's like one of the most fascinating things. That's why I always credit my mother, my grandmother, my family, because we take for granted when, uh, like as adults, the ability we have to shape the view of the world our children They have. were hiding you to save you from yourself because you could have been taken away from yeah, them. Yeah, and I, did, I didn't know this. Yes. I wasn't, imagine this, I'm a little kid growing up. They just tell me sometimes to go and hide under the bed. In my world, I go, I have the coolest parents in the world. <laughs> sometimes I go hide and then I come out. And then only when I'm writing the book does my grandmother tell me, oh yes, we, we hid you under the bed, Trevor. We hid you because the police would come and if they found you, then they would take you away. So we had to hide you. And I'm like, how did I not know this my entire life? And my grand goes, you never asked. Really? <laughs> And explain why they had to hide you. Well, because I was, I was evidence of my parents' crime. So here's the fundamental problem with racism, is that it's an idea that is defeated over and over again by people contradicting what people have been told. And that is, black and white cannot mix, colors cannot mix. And when people mix, they prove that it can happen. They prove that you can have beautiful children. They prove that love can cross color boundaries. And so now, a person like me is a product that creates a murky world. So the police would take a child like me. My skin tone is called colored in South Africa. And so colored would be removed into a colored community. So I couldn't be the child of a black woman, couldn't be the child of a black person because by the law I was superior to a black person. But I couldn't be with a white parent either because by the law, uh, you know, the white person was superior to me. And so you would have to keep each person in their group to maintain a system that truthfully doesn't make sense. So how do you figure out who you are? You tell a beautiful story of the time you were sent to this Model C school, I think right, it was. Right, And they say to you, you're gonna be in this class A. Right. Right, okay, explain that. You know the hardest thing growing up in, in life, and it's funny, identifying who you are is one of the toughest things you go through as a human being regardless of the world around you. I mean, just growing up when you're a child, who are you? You know, how do you see your, your gender? How do you see your personality? How do you see everything you are as a human being? And now compound that with a state that has defined you in a way that doesn't match with the world you're exploring. I lived in a world where the only people I saw were black around me. And because I don't walk around with a mirror, I only saw myself as the people around me. That was the mirror for my world. And then... So you didn't see yourself as a light-skinned no, I just, I just saw myself as somebody, I was Trevor. Yeah. That's all I knew myself as. And in the family, no one said, come here, light-skinned kid. They were like, yeah. it's Trevor, <laughs> you know? So you, you grow but up. it never occurred to you that, oh, my skin is lighter than theirs? Oh no, kids would say it, but that's the same way they would talk about a fat kid or a skinny kid or a tall kid or a short kid. It was a characteristic of yours. Okay. And so it was also never something that people used to exclude me growing up in the township. That was the fun thing is we grew up in the hood and kids would tease you about what you had, and in, in, in a weird way it was them going, we recognize you, we see you, okay. and now let's play together. Uh -huh. And so for the first time, I was lucky when, when apartheid ended, my mother got a bursary for me to go to a private school. And in the private school, it was the first generation of mixed Bursary is like a scholarship. Like a scholarship, yeah. Okay. And so 
I was one of the first generation of kids to be in a mixed environment. And so I thought that that was the world. I thought everyone was the same. We were all given school uniforms. We all had the same reading materials. So nobody had a class. Everyone was this was... your first time around white people? No, because my dad, church, these are places where I'd seen white people, I experienced white people. But you didn't experience them as white people. Exactly. You just experienced your dad as your dad. Exactly. Not as a white person. And that's dad. a strange world to be introduced to, yeah. is when for the first time, you start to learn about how races interact with each other and how races treat one another in a country. And that happened to me when I went to my first public school, when the teacher said to me, these are your tests to come into the school, these are your marks. You should go to this class. I went to the class. It was only white kids. And I didn't think it was abnormal until I went to recess. And then there was a flood of black children that came out of nowhere. And I was like, where are you guys from? <laughs> and they were like, oh, we're in another class. And I was like, well, this, I feel like I want to be in that class. I understand your languages. I connect. Where the hell are you? And then my teacher said to me, you can't go to that class because that's not the smart class. You want to be in the class you're in. And she said, if you go there, the rest of your life may not go in the direction you wanted to. And I chose to go into the black class, and I'm sitting next to Oprah now. <laughs> so. You have your own daily show. <laughs> no, when, when I read that in the book, I mean, you've got to have that teacher on your show. I should, actually. You're right. You, then you've got to do that. You gotta bring that teacher, and you gotta open the book, <laughs> you gotta read from that page, and then you gotta say, come on out, Mrs. <laughs> and sit in my seat on oh, the Daily man. Show. Yeah. Oh. yeah, yeah. So, in all of those years, the thing that really got me about this book, uh, and I actually read a review of it that said, it's a love letter to your mother. Completely. I mean, you and your mom, First of all, your mom, she's a badass man. Yeah. She is just I, like a, just a badass warrior woman. To have said she on purpose intentionally wanted to have you, right. knew it was against the law, knew it was against the law to be with a white person, said, I'm gonna do it anyway. Right. Yes. And I'm gonna have this child and I'm gonna raise this child the way I want to raise this child. Right. Yeah. Most people would have a sign to protest government oppression. My mother had me. Uh, <laughs> and you know, in, in, in telling my story and writing this book, I never thought it was about my mom. I think most of us believe that we're the heroes of our story. Yeah. And in writing the story, I realized that I was my mother's punk-ass sidekick. I, <laughs> you know, I, I genuinely, I didn't set out to write it about my mother at all. I just, I was telling my story. And it's, it's funny how you sit down and then you come to realize the people in your life who have shaped you and who play a big role in who you are. And I can't deny that my mother was that person for me who stood up at a time when, when many people were afraid to stand up, when a country was being punished for standing up. And she said, no, as a woman and as a black person, I will live the way I believe I'm allowed to live, whether you tell me I can or not. And she did that. And so because of that, she's the example that I lived my life by without realizing the consequences. And that, for me, is one of the most gangster human beings you can shape yourself Oh, by. yeah, your mom's gangster. So, this, this, I thought, on page 73 was one of the greatest tributes. You said, the highest rung of what's possible, listen, y'all, the highest rung of what's possible is far beyond the world you can see. My mother showed me what was possible. The thing that always amazed me about her life was that no one showed her. I know y'all would like that part. <laughs> no one chose her. 
She did it on her own. She found her way through sheer force of will. An amazing gangsta mom. Really. Right. And she had this crazy Volkswagen beat up car. <laughs> yeah. My mom till this day refuses to buy a new car, refuses to live in the world of money, refuses, she just does her own thing. She has like her little garden in the backyard. She raises chickens. She lives, she just goes to church. She, yeah. she is. You're the only person I've interviewed that I can remember who's a famous person who grew up poorer than I did. I mean, the fact that we could talk outhouses, I mean, it's pretty good. That's insane, right? It's insane, yeah. yeah. And that's a weird experience that not many people can understand fully, is like growing up with an outhouse. Like, it's just a hole in the ground, you do your thing. It's, it's a humbling experience, and I also, it's, it's like bungee jumping. I'm glad I did it, but I don't want to do it again. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I loved, uh, on the first night of your show, you were saying the two things you didn't think were possible is having, right. yeah. And, but the truth is, doesn't it make, now, how, many, how many bathrooms do you have now? How many, I have two, three, three. Three. three bathrooms. Yeah, three. That's just in America. <laughs> I've got like, I've got like three more back home. Okay. I'm bawling, Oprah. Bawling. Bawling. I'm bawling but out of control right now. Every time, every time, I think I've got five in my house right now. Five. Sorry. Okay. Well, you're Oprah. Okay, I, mean... I got five. <laughs> but every time, I mean, there are there are moments still when I'm in the bathroom yes. and that whole like being able to flush it and it's right there and blah blah blah. All of it. It's fantastic. All of it. I, Isn't I, it? People. People think this is a joke, but like, go. Here's the thing as well. My That's because the outhouse is the thing you never forget. Yeah. First of all, you never forget the smell. No. You just can't never. Because forget. it doesn't go away. There's no flushing. Yeah. There's no. It's it's just it's perpetually existing. What you did and yesterday I... will be told to you today. Like it, it's always <laughs> there. It always and your family stories are told to you as well. It's just. You exist in a, but, but like. And you, know, you had a fear of going to the outhouse. I always thought I was gonna fall in. Yes, yes. you think you're gonna fall in. You're gonna fall in and God I heard knows stories of people too. falling in. Yes. People always said someone fell in and I was like, I don't know who fell in, but I believe the story. <laughs> yes, fell in. yes. And, and here's the thing, my grandmother still lives in the same house we grew up in. And now we've converted the outhouse into a flushing toilet, which she's, my, my grandmother insists on keeping outdoors because she likes it. Because she doesn't like the idea of a toilet that's indoors. She goes like, that's ridiculous. Why would I want that happening inside my house? <laughs> so, so, my, so when I go to my grandmother's house, I'm like, it, it's completely the same thing, the same door, the same world that I, I experience because my grandmother's like, no, I, I love this. Okay, so what I also love is that you talk in the book about the black tax. Yes. That white people don't know nothing about, but black people have a black tax because you're expected to explain the black tax. Well, here's, here's the thing, here's the thing, and this is, this is one of the hardest conversations to have with people is like, you know, oftentimes we get into conversations especially today, where white people will say, not all, but white people will have a conversation where they say, I don't understand why a black person feels so oppressed. We've lived the same lives, we've grown up the same way. Yes, I understand maybe your parents were oppressed, but now you're free. So what's the issue? And then what you come to realize is, apart from traces of systematic or systemic oppression that still exist, there is also one underlying issue, and that is the devastation that impacted your generational family. Like, like, those are things that you take for granted. Even if you say, well, my grandfather wasn't rich, I got nothing from him. Yeah, but you got opportunity, you got knowledge, you got ideas, you got things that many black families were robbed of. And so, I what, think what that's so really important. You know, I've done hundreds of shows over the years of the Oprah Show, and I remember actually being in an audience talking about race, and a white woman said exactly that to a black guest. I didn't do it to you. 
Why should I still feel right. bad because I didn't do right. it to you? That was your grandmothers and great-grandmothers, and I was trying to do exactly what you just did. Explain, what if your grandmother had never been allowed to work as anything other than a maid? Right. What if your grandfather could never find a job? What if nobody in your family was ever treated like they were a full human being? Wouldn't that have any impact at all on you? Do you think you would have felt any of right. that? So that's what you're, you're and, saying. And essentially, you know what, the best way I, it, it's funny, it happened the other day when I, I was watching a documentary on Hurricane Sandy in New mm. York and in New Jersey and I was looking at the effects. And after, after the hurricane hits, people were devastated. Businesses were demolished. And the government stepped in and said, we will give you subsidies, we will give you low interest loans, we will help you get back on your feet. Because the people understood that that devastation needed to be corrected. And so if that has happened to a people, if there has been a hurricane of racism that has obliterated people, wouldn't you then need to come back in and say, we will help you get back on your feet because you have lost because everything. Because we recognize exactly. what happened to you. And, that, and, and essentially, that's what in many ways the black tax is, is that the first generation of success for many black people means you now have to go back and work on correcting everything. I have to get my brothers through school. I have to get my family through school. I have to get my younger cousins through school. I have to get... It, because you are the first of an entire family to experience that success. And the greatest gift my mother gave me, and she always said it was, my son, I may not be able to give you one cent in this world, but I promise you I will not give you the black tax. That's the one thing I'll keep from you. I will handle it. You go and fly in the world. But you know, it's so interesting because one of my girls, Mahal, uh, stand up, hey, Mahal. Well, it's one of my daughters from South Africa. And I say this to the girls all the time, that that's going to be the greatest burden unless you free it from right. yourself. Right. That you get to decide what that tax should be. Right. Nobody else gets to tell you because just the fact that you can free yourself, that is what your ancestors would have wanted for you. There's also, there's also a guilt attached with it. You know, yeah. and, that's, and that's something my mother learned the hard way is she had to go on a journey where she left the family because she realized she needed to build before she could give back. Yep. And sometimes, as human beings, we exist in a space, and this is beyond race, where we have people who need from us, and we haven't built for ourselves yet. And you cannot give what you do not have. And so sometimes you have to well, build Trevor's for yourself. Trevor's gonna preach now. It's true, though. You cannot give what you do not have. Preach, Trevor, preach. And that so is so true. You, you know, if you, if you build it for yourself first, yeah. then you can give it to others. Thank you. You're so right about that. I just want to know, because I kept waiting in the book for you to tell us how you ended up on The Daily Show. How did that happen to you? That was one of the most surreal experiences ever. I was, for the first time, touring the world. I had just started touring in the UK, and I was doing comedy in the world, which was a lifelong dream for me. And I was walking through Harrods. I'll never forget this. It's a crazy store where they sell everything that nobody can afford. <laughs> Most of us cannot afford. And so I was walking around looking at just crazy things in the world and my phone rings, and it's an American number, and I answer, and the voice on the other side says, hi, can I speak to Trevor Noah? And I said, speaking, and the voice said, hi, this is John Stewart. And I said, uh, yes, because I'm, I'm not thinking it's the John Stewart. It's like if I got called by someone and said I'm Oprah, I'd be like, Oprah Stevenson, Oprah. <laughs> I'm not just gonna jump to like, of course, Oprah, hello, yes, Oprah. I don't know which John Stewart is calling me. Yeah. And so I said, John Stewart, I said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm John Stewart, I host The Daily Show in America, you may have heard of it. I was like, yeah, of course I've heard of the show. And he said, well, I've seen your comedy, and uh, I'm a big fan of yours. Where had he seen your, your comedy? On YouTube. On YouTube. Yeah, yeah. And, and then he said, hey, I, I, I was wondering if you ever come to America, would you like to pop into the show and hang out? I, I think you'd like what we do, and maybe we could hang out. And... You said, I'm going to be there next Tuesday. And funny enough, no, I said no. 
You said no. Yeah, you, like I said, this is the greatest moment of my life, but I've worked so hard to get what I have in the UK. These people have bought tickets. This is the most important thing that's ever happened to me. Thank you, but no. And he, he paused and he said, are, are you seriously saying no? And I said, yeah, but I'm, thank you. <laughs> but thank you, but no. And was he asking you to leave? Uh, yeah, well, I knew, I, would, I knew that I would have to cancel my tours. I'd have to go to oh, the US. Okay. I'd have to, and I was like, no, I've worked for this. I've worked for these people. I've worked for, I don't take my fans for granted. I respect that. I respect and so that. I, I did that. And John said, well, when you ever do come to New York, look me up and let's hang out. And I did that a year and a half later. And a year and a half later. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. That reminds me of a story, well, I won't tell it here, about Sidney Poitier, when he... Okay, no, it's not even about me. It's, it, it's a story about character. I mean, the, I hadn't heard that story uh, that you're just telling, and that is the sign of true character. And I remember early on doing a, an interview with Sidney Poitier where he had told of really wanting to be in the film industry, and he'd gone to audition for this role. He was making less than a dollar an hour as a dishwasher, and this role was gonna pay him $700 a week. Wow. And it was the role of a janitor, which he said he didn't have problems being a janitor, but the janitor's daughter gets murdered and the daughter is thrown out onto the lawn. And he said he wouldn't do anything his father wouldn't have done. And he wouldn't take the role because he thought it would bring dishonor to his father, wow. to play a father who would allow his daughter to be thrown out of line. So he turned down the role. Wow. Turned down the role, and after he left, the guy says, who is that guy that would turn down that role? And that guy ended up being his agent for over 50 years after that. But it's the sign of character to say, even though I got the call that most people wait for their entire lives, right. I have a responsibility and a respect for my fans, and I, I won't take the call. I didn't. Right. That's really good. Your mama raised a really good son. It's really good. Thank you. So, were you surprised when they said, we want you now to step in and do it? I was. I was surprised because I, I, in my world, I had no chance, but I come from a world where there was no chance. So, every chance I've taken is the one that's impossible. I always say to people, why do the possible thing? It's boring if you succeed. Yeah. Like, do the impossible thing. <laughs> yeah. Because if you don't get it right, people are like, you weren't going to get it right. And if you do, you did the impossible. Yeah. And so for me, it was like, yeah, I'll throw my name in. And if I don't get The Daily Show, I was never meant to get The Daily Show. But if I get it, this is something that I would have never dreamed of doing. And so they called me. I was doing shows in Dubai. And I got a phone call. And they said, hey, we've looked through everyone. We've gone through all our decisions. Would you like to be the host of The Daily Show? And I, I, if I wasn't sitting down, I would, I would have fallen over. I would have fainted. It was mind-blowing. And I couldn't get alcohol because I was in Dubai. They're like, I, didn't know. <laughs> I was just like, I'm so happy. And it, you know, and it, it, was, it was everything. It really was. Yeah. And what is your intention with the show every night? It's not just about the funny. I think in many ways it is about the funny for me. But it's how I see the funny that defines the show. So I've come to realize and this is partly by speaking to great comedians who have been mentors and friends in my life. You know, the likes of Dave Chappelle and Chris Rock and, and Eddie Murphy and reading about Richard Pryor and Dick Gregory. People who said to me, the truth is where the funny lies. Tell the truth and that's where you'll find the funniest jokes. And so for me, in pursuing the funny, I pursue the truth. And if I find the truth, then the funny will marry with that. And so in creating the show, I'm somebody who loves engaging in the news. 
I love discussing ideas. I love engaging in conversation and in debate. And oh, so you're having a good time. Oh yeah, I love it. Yeah. Every single day. Is we can a, a see you're having a good time. Yeah. Okay. Every single day is a journey for me. And for me, it's 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 the purpose of the show is to engage in the news in a manner that is critical in its thought, to think about what's happening, process it, react to it, and most importantly, give it the respect that it deserves, whilst not also giving it the power to completely control your emotional states. Absolutely. I read where you said you believe we've reached a tipping point of uh, outrage and injustice. That's pretty profound coming from somebody who's lived through apartheid. Well, it's worrying when you look at what's happening in America, you know, and in some parts of the world as well, but America's getting to a place where it feels like it is extremely divided along partisan lines. And conversations have shifted to a point where human beings no longer see a human being on the other side of this yeah. discussion. And it's tough to say that one side should be empathetic towards the other side when the other side doesn't see them as human beings. Uh -huh. And that's a fundamental breakdown that seems to be happening in America. And you can't deny, and, and this is my thing, is I tell people all the time, they go like, oh, if you hate America, why? I'm like, yeah, I never said I hate, I love it, if I, if I didn't love it, I wouldn't be here. This is a great place, I enjoy America. I love Americans, I have a great time. Having an issue with Donald Trump doesn't make me unique because every Republican saw it before he was in office. You know, and so if, as you said, going back to character, if your character shifts depending on who's in power, then was it your character to begin with? That's, that's the way I see it, so. So I don't think in this instance, and I mean, there are many people who are considered themselves conservatives who till this day go, no, this party I don't recognize, this man I do not recognize, and I cannot go with this because he does not espouse my views that I have proclaimed for such a long time. And so I think anyone who's honest in that sphere understands that it's not about partisan anything. It's about seeing what you see, pointing it out, and speaking your truth. Mm. Do you feel you hit a stride? I, you know, it's interesting. I, I listened to your podcast about when you were creating your show. Mm -hmm. And when you're creating a show, especially when it's daily, there are moments where you feel like, you, I, I always feel like I've hit my stride in moments after a break. Like, I'll, I'll go away for two weeks, and then we come back and kick off the show, and there's, it's almost like there's muscle memory that works without me trying. Yeah. But I don't ever think that I've hit my stride. It's very much like an athletic event. You're always trying to be better. You're always, you're always it's not It's interesting. Satisfied. So by stride, I mean, do you think you've found your way? I think I've reshaped how I've seen the show, because when I first started The Daily Show, and when I took over the seat from Jon Stewart, yeah. I had an idea of what I wanted the show to be. I've now come to realize that I am existing and the show is existing as an organism in a, in a world that is constantly changing. And so I cannot give it a concrete definition because the world around it is constantly shaping how it reacts. Okay. So if anything, I wish for the show to be like water. It should be moving with the same force as it moves through ideas and conversations. And sometimes the show will be a vessel for me to express my catharsis and the catharsis of the people watching. Sometimes it's a place for us to enjoy laughter. Sometimes it's a place for us to learn something new. I think it's about finding an authentic way to express a point of view in and around what the news is every single day. That's what I'm trying to do on the show. But I've come to realize there is no fixed point. I'm sailing in a direction, aiming for true north, but it's, it's shifting with the tide and you're, you're constantly trying to keep the boat where it needs to go versus where you thought it should go. You got it. That's it. Fine. That's it. That's it. That is it.
That is it. You have to let it guide you because right. it's bigger than you. Exactly. And you are there to be used by it. And so you allow it to take you where it needs to go. It is my great pleasure and delight to meet you. Thank you so much. Great pleasure and delight. Trevor Noah, born a crime, get the book. Thank you so much. Uh, so wonderful. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening. <laughs>